Welcome to UU Akron Service Cast, brought to you by the Unitarian Universalist Church of Akron. If you would like more information about Unitarian Universalism or our community, please seek us out at uuakron.org. The following recording is from the September 25, 2016 service titled The Talk, led by Rev. Tim Temerson and Barrett Bills. For generations, African-American parents have been forced to talk to their children about the harsh reality of racism, including the dangers posed to black lives by the criminal justice system. Today's service will examine the injustices that compel parents to have this conversation and ask what we as Unitarian Universalists can and must do to build a society in which the talk is no longer required. Friends, we begin this morning with words from Christian Schmidt. Let us wake up, not just from the Sunday morning exhaustion, from the wish for a few more drowsy minutes in bed. Let us wake up to this world we live in, to its beauty and wonder, and also to its tragedy and pain. We must wake up to this reality that not all in our world have what we do, however much or little that is. We must wake up to the idea that our wholeness, our lives, are only as complete as the lives of those around us, of those we are inextricably tied to in a web of mutuality of which all of us are a part. We must, in the words of our friends and colleagues involved in Black Lives Matter, stay woke, working every day for racial justice in our country. Let us wake up. Let us stay awake. Let us stay woke. I now invite Jenny to light our flaming chalice, the symbol of Unitarian Universalism. This is a symbol that traces its origins through World War II, where it became a signal to the marginalized, a guide to the oppressed, to spaces of sanctuary and safe passages. And I share these words adapted from Annie Forrester. They're words traditionally used at winter solstice when we celebrate the cyclic recession of darkness and the coming of light. This light, though, will be different because the darkness is different. It's not cyclic, but one of humankind's own making. Thus, the light will simply not be welcomed as the seemingly inevitable coming of spring. We must work together to bring it about. Come we now out of darkness of our unknowing and the dusk of our dreaming. Come we now from far places. Come we now into the twilight of our awakening and the reflection of our gathering. Come we now all together. We bring unilluminated our dark caves of doubting. We seek unbedazzled the clear light of understanding. May the sparks of our joining kindle our resolve, brighten our spirits, reflect our love, and unshadow our days. Come we now, enter the dawning. If the children would like to come up and join me for a story this morning, come on forward. Front and center. Sister Goose was swimming along in the pond enjoying the beautiful sunny day. As she swam along, once in a while she'd duck her head down underneath and nibble at the little underwater plants that sustained her. She was swimming along, ducking now and then, eating a little bit here, eating a little bit there, but not taking more than she needed for her hunger because she knew the pond is for everyone. 
Meanwhile, Brother Fox was on the shore hiding in the willows. When he looked out through the willows and he saw Sister Goose swimming in what he thought was his pond, he did not like what he saw. All he saw was this goose eating the plants that were supposed to be his and the other foxes. As Sister Goose swam along happily, nibbling a bit here and there, she finally came around to that far end of the pond where the willows were. When Brother Fox jumped out and yelled, Trespasser, get off of my pond. Sister Goose was perplexed at this. She didn't understand because she knew the pond was for everyone. She said, Trespasser, how can that be? The pond is here for all of us. Well, she could tell that the fox was not hearing what she was saying. <clears throat> the fox said, not only that, I saw that you were eating plants out of my pond. Those are my plants. If you don't get out now, I'm taking you to court. <laughs> Sister Goose shook her head. Again, she knew Brother Fox could not hear what she had to say about this being not fair. So she said, okay, we'll go to court because there justice will be served. When they get to the courthouse, who knows what a courthouse is? Okay, most of you. Courthouse is where judges and juries sit to decide fairness about the laws in our country. Okay, so they go to the courthouse. When Sister Goose gets there, she starts to get nervous because when she gets inside the door, the two clerks on either side of the door are both foxes. When she gets into the courtroom, sitting up on the judge's bench is a fox. In the jury box, there are foxes. And even the lawyers who are supposed to be arguing the cases are foxes too. She started to quake in her feathers because she knew this was not good. Sure enough, she was called into the defendant's stand, and even though she pointed out that the pond was indeed for everyone, I mean, can you guys imagine a fox owning a pond? Really? <laughs> so she could see, presented her argument about the pond's for everyone. It should be fair. There's enough for everybody. Still, the judge and the jury convicted her and made her into stew. Now, I have to tell you, I really don't like the ending of this story. It's a terrible ending for a story. It's terrible, right? It's totally unfair. And we have this Unitarian Universalist principle that says that there should be justice, equity, and compassion for all people. And that's why I have on the orange scarf today, because that's for offer fair and kind treatment to all people. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is change the end of the story. But the only way that we can change the end of the story, because where's the real problem? It starts with the fox, right? 
thinking that he gets to own a pond that should be for everybody. But that's, you know, these, those things happen. People have disagreements. But where the story really needs to change, really needs to change, is at the courthouse, right? Because that's where the fair decision can get made, at the courthouse. If the courthouse is all full of foxes, it's going to be hard for a goose to get justice. But there has to be a way for that to happen. And as sad as it is that this story happens in life, that's what we can change, is what happens at the courthouse. Good morning. Good morning. I wish those two words were actually how I felt when I wake up every morning. Unfortunately, they are just an empty greeting now because of all that has happened in the recent past. And I wish I could honestly say that these incidents began recently and unfortunately, again, I cannot. They began too long ago, way before I was born. And for that reason, I had to write the words that follow. I couldn't hold them in and continue on as if nothing is happening. I'm tired. My heart hurts, both emotionally and physically. I fear for the lives of my husband, my children, my grandchildren, and even myself, as well as for the lives of every black man, woman, and child in America today. We just want to live. Not until, not until you can look into my child's eyes and see the innocence shattered. Not until you can dry the tears from every mother whose child was slain. Not until you can hear my anguished cries of anger and know that they are fully justified. Not until you peel back the layers of your own heart until it is raw and new again not until you can protect my brown-skinned child with your very life like you do your own. Not until you can scream at the top of your voice that every black life is worth just as much as mine. Not until you can confront your white-skinned brothers who can't take the time to see the real person behind the dark brown veil before making an irreversible decision to shoot down without care or thought until eventually there may be no more left. Not until you realize it is your responsibility to say stop. Not until you realize it only continues because you let it. Not until you realize that when they are done with us, you are next. Not until I can vomit my heartfelt words out onto the floor and you don't mind being there to clean it up. Only then will you wake up to the horror that is our lives every day 
Only then will you see my child to be as valuable as the babes you carry in your womb. Only then will the hard work of standing in between the next young black man and now woman or child and the gun begin. Only then will the invisible, gaping, angry wounds that scar the insides of our souls be able to heal. Only then will the life of every child born into this world who stares back at you from a body clothed in beautiful shades of brown through eyes as bright as the stars in the black velvet sky be able to live a life of health, of safety, of comfort, of peace, of hope, of love, of joy, of happiness that is long enough to hold their little brown grandchildren in their arms while telling them wonderful stories of what it was like to grow up when they are at the end of their days in a world that embraces them as its very own. Not until you realize that this world belongs to us all or none of us. Not until. Krista, I don't have words to express my sadness and my deep gratitude for the poem that you just shared with us. I don't have to even say that it's so honest, so painful, so heartfelt, and for me, so challenging. I can't imagine what writing it must have been like for you, and I know that sharing it with us this morning may have even been harder. As I told you, you, when we first talked about it, you had said you weren't sure you could make it through and that you would have a lot of tears, and I told you that those tears would be holy water in this space. And I'm so glad that you decided to share your poem with us this morning. Thank you. I was originally going to begin today's sermon by diving right in and talking about the talk, which is the title today of today's sermon, the title, the talk that generations of African-American parents have felt compelled to have with their children. But before I do that, I'm sorry to say, although I'm not surprised that we instead must begin once again by offering our thoughts and prayers to the families of two more African-American men who recently died after violent encounters with law enforcement. Nine days ago, Terrence Crutcher, who was unarmed and had his hands in the air, was shot and killed by a police officer in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this past Tuesday, Keith Scott, who was sitting in his vehicle 
waiting at his son's bus stop, was shot and killed by a Charlotte, North Carolina police officer. What in the world is going on? Why do African Americans who are unarmed, who are stopped or pulled over by the police for no reason other than driving while black, or who are within their rights to carry a weapon because they have a concealed carry permit or live in an open carry state, why do these citizens, our brothers and sisters, continue to die at the hands of the people who are supposed to protect them? According to an article I recently saw in the Washington Post, in 2015, 25% of those who were killed by law enforcement during that one year were African American, even though African Americans only make up of 13% of the U.S. population. That means an African American was two and a half times more likely to die during an encounter with police than a white American. And I'm sorry to report that the trends have even gotten worse in 2016. Now, at first glance, it appears that the answer lies with the police and with the criminal justice system. Perhaps the problem is that we have a whole bunch of racist cops who are acting out their own prejudices in profiling African Americans for frequent and unwarranted traffic stops or, have, or who have a shoot first and ask questions later attitude when they encounter African-Americans, and particularly an African-American male. While I have no doubt that there are law enforcement officers who are guided by racist assumptions and stereotypes, and if you happen to see the video from Tulsa, think back to the murder of Terrence Crutcher, who was described by an officer flying overhead in a helicopter who had never really seen or talked to Terrence Crutcher as a bad dude. But I want to make the case today that the violence of law enforcement towards African Americans and the rampant injustices in our criminal justice system are a symptom of a much larger problem than a few bad or racist cops. A problem that is deeply rooted in the history and culture of this nation and that also explains why generation after generation of African American parents have to have the talk with their children. And here's the problem. From the time the first slaves were forcibly and brutally brought to this land, black lives and black bodies have been seen by white society as being unworthy and unimportant, dangerous and potentially violent, and in need of being dominated and controlled. Those are the assumptions at the heart of the ideology and practice of white supremacy, and those assumptions have guided our nation from before we became a nation and they guide us right up to the present day. Now, I imagine that for many of us sitting here today, the idea that things haven't really changed over the last three or 400 years sounds pretty strange and hard to believe. I mean, there are so many visible signs that racism and racial discrimination have at least diminished and decreased. I mean, come on, slavery and segregation are distant memories, and the doors of education and economic opportunity have been open to some in the African-American community. I mean, African-Americans serve as CEOs of Fortune 500 companies in the top ranks of the American military, as leaders in science and industry and medicine, as law enforcement officers and chiefs of police, and of course, with President Obama as the current President of the United States. 
And yet, in the midst of all this progress and improvement, as you heard this morning, there is so much pain, so much heartbreak, and far too much grief and mourning. Far too many families, including the families of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, of Sandra Bland and Rakaia Boyd, of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, of Walter Scott and Freddie Gray, of Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice, and most recently of, of Terrence Crutcher and Keith Scott. So many families have had to bury their loved ones for no other reason than because they were black. I want to say a word about one of the tragic victims I just listed, the one who is closest to home to us, Tamir Rice. You may recall that Tamir was killed by a Cleveland police officer a little less than two years ago. In my view, Tamir Rice's death is one of the most outrageous examples of how little value was placed on black lives in our country. The photo on the cover of your order of service shows the shrine that was created at the spot where 12-year-old Tamir was gunned down by Officer Timothy Lohman. And what was Tamir Rice's crime? He was playing with a toy gun at a neighborhood park in a state with an open carry law, meaning that even if Tamir's gun had been real, he wasn't breaking the law. The fact that Tamir was a 12-year-old child and that he wasn't breaking any law, however, didn't stop Officer Lohman and his partner from driving their car up at a high speed right up to where he was standing and then shooting him only a second or two after jumping out of their car. I ask you, had Tamir Rice been a 12-year-old white child, would he be alive today? Would officers be so quick to take the life of a white child who was playing with a toy gun in a park? And even if his gun had been real, would they be so quick to shoot someone obeying the law in an open carry state if that person had been white? And finally, would the local prosecutor and the grand jury be so unwilling to file charges against the officers had Tamir been from a white family that enjoyed access to all the benefits and privileges all the benefits and advantages of white privilege? Those are the questions that I wrestle with. And these are the questions and the realities that I think lead so many African Americans to distrust the criminal justice system and to fear for their children's lives. These are also the questions and realities that lead African American parents to have the talk with their children a talk in which they feel compelled to warn their children that the police are as much, if not more, of a threat to their safety than all the other dangers that children encounter today. As one African-American mother living in Detroit once told the liberal minister and social activist Jim Wallace, and this is a quote, I tell all of my children, if you are ever lost and can't find your way home and you see a policeman, quickly duck behind a building or down a stairwell. When the policeman is gone, come out and find your way home. That kind of fear and mistrust should not and must not exist in a country founded on the idea that all men, all people 
are created equal. But the fear and the mistrust do exist, and they have existed, as I said before, since before our country even became a country. At the heart of the American experience has been what one writer calls a value gap between what our country professes and how we live. While we celebrate our nation as a land of freedom and equality for all, that land has been dominated by ideology and practice that simply says white people are more important and more valued than others. And that value gap has translated into a wide array of privileges and opportunities that have made it possible for people like me to get a high-quality education and to send my children to elite colleges, to obtain low-interest loans to purchase homes and automobiles, and to never have to think about, to never have to even think about having the talk with my son or daughter. Now, I don't have time this morning to provide you with a detailed history of the origins and development of white supremacy in this country. If you would like to learn more and really get into this subject, I want to recommend a couple of books to you. One is by Jim Wallace, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, and it's called America's Original Sin. And there's another book, and they're up here, the images are up here on the screen, another book by Kelly Brown Douglas called Stand Your Ground, Black Bodies and the Justice of God. I actually had the chance to hear Dr. Brown Douglas speak while I was on sabbatical. She lectured at a conference I attended, and I have to say that her lecture really opened my eyes to just how pervasive white supremacy has been throughout our history. From the earliest days of the American colonies, an ideology that affirmed the superiority of white pure Anglo-Saxon blood and institutions, and that at the same time saw black African bodies as inferior, our nation and our culture has sought to dominate, control, and criminalize black bodies. White supremacy, as Dr. Brown said so, Kelly Brown said so powerfully in her, in her lecture, is not simply about racist cops pulling people over for driving while black while black, but rather it's about an entire system that has, from the very beginning, made living while black a justification for oppression and violence. When I read her book, I'm sorry to say that two of our Unitarian forebearers made an appearance, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Theodore Parker. And they made an appearance because both of them in their writings were purveyors of this ideology of white Anglo-Saxon supremacy. Emerson wrote a book called English Traits, in which he celebrated the superiority of English stock, and in which he also made reference to the inherent racial inferiority of blacks in explaining, in explaining their subjugation and servitude. For his part, Parker once wrote that, and here's the, this is a quote, the Caucasian differs from all other races, he is humane, he is civilized and progressive. That is why the Caucasian has been the master of other races, never their slave. I wonder if it's because the Caucasian had guns. Now, I don't want to leave you with the impression that Emerson and Parker were all bad or that they were nothing more than racists and 
white supremacy ideologues. In fact, both were abolitionists, and Parker was a supporter of John Brown's raid at Harper's Ferry and a leader in efforts to prevent slave catchers from capturing runaway slaves in his hometown of Boston. But if these two men, who were leading voices for reform in their day, held the kind of views I quoted earlier, one can only imagine how pervasive the ideology of white supremacy was and I'm sorry to say, still is. Now, of course, there have been moments in our history when some aspects of white supremacy have been challenged and even overturned. The Civil War brought an end to slavery, and it took a heroic and courageous nonviolent resistance movement to overturn segregation and to ensure, at least for a time, voting rights for African Americans. That's back in doubt again. But it is important to note that those victories did not end white supremacy and racism in America. Rather, both simply went underground, becoming less overt and obvious, but still functioning to preserve and protect white privilege while keeping so many American, African Americans warehoused in, the criminal, in a criminal justice system of mass incarceration, in schools that are chronically underfunded and underachieving, and in communities that have been abandoned by white society and that have become, as one writer puts it, opportunity deserts. Now, although there are many individuals and institutions responsible for the perpetuation of white supremacy, there are few that bear more responsibility, in my view, than the church. And I'm specifically talking about the white church. What predominantly white denominations. And I'm also especially talking about predominantly white progressive liberal denominations like Unitarian Universalism. Historically, our faith has, at times, stepped up and worked for racial justice. Earlier this week, I imagine many of you saw the Ken Burns film, which we talked about last Sunday, about Martha and Wade Still Sharp, who courageously rescued hundreds of Jews and other refugees from Nazi persecution. During the voting rights protests in Selma, Alabama, in the mid-1960s, two very courageous Unitarian Universalists lost their lives in the struggle. But while we look back at these moments with pride, they have been too far, too few, and far between. For most of our history, we have chosen instead to play it safe, periodically preaching high-minded sermons, showing up at some protest rallies, and sometimes writing letters to public officials. But while we have remained behind stained glass windows, generations of African-American parents have continued to have to explain to their children that our country is not a safe place for them because they are viewed as dangerous objects to be controlled and even killed rather than as precious lives to be cherished. Friends, we cannot and we must not continue to sit back in silence and indifference. We must see that every day we remain silent is a vote of support for white privilege and white supremacy. The current system that we live in goes against every value and principle that we affirm in Unitarian Universalism, every one of them. White supremacy doesn't respect the inherent worth and dignity of every person. It's just the opposite. 
African-Americans are not treated with justice, equity, and compassion, as our second Unitarian Universalist principle affirms. I could keep going down, write the list of all seven of those principles. But the point is that the time has come to make this faith and this church an instrument for dismantling white supremacy, rather than a place where we can feel good about saying and believing the right things without committing ourselves to putting those words and beliefs into action. So where do we go from here? Where do we begin? Well, I think we begin right where Acrista's incredible poem challenges us to begin. We must to paraphrase her powerful words, scream at the top of our lungs that every black life is worth as much as our own. We must confront our white-skinned brothers who hide behind chants of all lives matter rather than acknowledging the undeniable reality that black lives have never mattered in this country. And we must realize it is ultimately our responsibility to say, stop, and to acknowledge that white supremacy continues because we allow it to continue. Here at the UU Church of Akron, we have recently formed a racial justice task force, and we are beginning to take some preliminary steps in the direction of dismantling white supremacy. It's a long journey, but you got to start somewhere. For one thing, we are considering putting a Black Lives Matter banner either on our building on the outside or somewhere on our property. And Janet Griffin-Lebon, sitting right over there, has designed a banner. Here's what it looks like. I actually love the phrasing of that. All lives won't matter until black lives matter. That's one step. Another is that we will be hosting an upcoming training, I believe in November, led by an organization called Showing Up for Racial Justice, which seeks to empower white folks to have conversations about race with other white people. If you'd like to learn more about these initiatives and the other racial justice work that we are currently doing and hoping to do in the future, there's an information meeting at 12 noon in the McKeeman Room, right over there. There's Deb Lemire and Sir... Sir LeBaire Jr. is over there. They'll be guiding the meeting. So I hope you'll bring, bring your coffee back and join them at 12 noon. Friends, let me simply conclude by saying that, man, these sure are painful and challenging times. Sometimes it can feel as if there is no path forward, no hope for righting the wrongs and injustices of our world. But we can't. We must not give in to despair and indifference. There's simply too much to be done. And I believe with all my heart that if people of goodwill have the courage and the commitment to use their privilege to tear down the edifice of white supremacy and to build a world where everyone is privileged, where everyone is valued, and where every life truly matters, man, things can and will begin to change. And I believe that you, that we can be those people. We can come together to live out the true meaning and the true calling of this faith. We can come together to say with voices that are loud and clear that we will no longer accept a status quo that values some while devaluing and dehumanizing 
so many others. And we can come together to build a world in which, as our closing hymn says, all people will know how it feels to be free. Thank you all for listening and blessed be. So I'm going to invite Barrett to extinguish our chalice and leave you with these words from the incomparable W.E.B. Du Bois, who says, now is the accepted time. Not tomorrow, not some more convenient season. It is today that our best work can be done and not some future day or future year. It is today that we fit ourselves for the greater usefulness of tomorrow. Today is the seed time. Now are the hours of work, and tomorrow comes the harvest and the playtime. Friends, be well. Take very good care of yourselves, of each other, and of the world. We live in a tough world right now, a really tough world. Be kind to each other. Love one another. Have compassion. And get outside your comfort zone. Let's build some bridges. Let's build some justice. Let's build some freedom for all. Blessed be and go in peace. We thank you again and encourage you to seek us out at uuakron.org to find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at uuakron. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, we'd be very grateful if you left us a review. It would help us a great deal and improving the programming, and also in spreading the word about our community and Unitarian Universalism.